This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Chris and Sophie are off tonight. We'll have more on those stories in just a moment. But first, breaking coronavirus news in this province. The provincial health officer holding an unscheduled update just a short time ago. Let's go to our Richard, Richard Zussman, who is there. And Richard, we have another case, I understand, here in B.C. We do, and it wrapped up about 10 minutes ago, the press conference, and this is a rare case because it's linked outside of China. This is a case of a woman in her 30s who most recently traveled in Iran. She returned here to British Columbia in January. She checked into hospital. They believed it was a milder form of COVID-19, and she has been sent home in the Fraser Health region and remains in isolation there. This is a case that's being described as a sentinel case or an indicator. It's surprising health officials because it's taking place in a region where they weren't expecting to see cases. There is an international investigation now underway into this case. This one clearly is uh, a bit unusual in that uh, the travel to Iran is something new and uh, Iran has uh, recently started reporting cases uh, and we are working and will be working with our national and international colleagues to better understand where the risks and where she may have been exposed to this virus prior to her return to Canada. This is the sixth case of COVID-19 detected here in British Columbia. And now the investigation is underway to get a better understanding of who may have run into contact into this woman. So there will be details provided soon around the flight the woman was on, whether anyone could have contracted the virus on that flight and who she may have interacted with. Some close contacts of hers have now been moved into isolation as well. Again, the province wants to remind the public it is low risk in terms of uh, contracting the COVID-19 virus, but the fact that this is linked to travel in Iran uh, has led to not just a national investigation, but an international one as well. All right, thanks for the update, Richard. Richard Zussman reporting in Victoria for night, tonight. And coming up on the news hour, we'll have the latest on a plane carrying Canadian cruise ship passengers who tested negative for coronavirus, now en route back to Canada. Well, it's been 10 years since our province basked in Olympic glory. And as we look back fondly on the 2010 Winter Games tonight, there's fresh excitement. John Furlong, former CEO of the Olympic Organizing Committee, telling Global BC that now is the time for Vancouver to seriously consider a new bid. John Waugh has more on the legacy of 2010 and the push for 2030. John. Well, Jay, we're here at the Vancouver Curling Club, which you can see is extremely popular. This is also a legacy facility of the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Games. And across the region, there are nice reminders of what those games meant to the community. So much so, many are saying, let's do it all again. There was an unforgettable feeling of unity and celebration. A sense of national pride that lives on as nostalgia 
for countless Canadians a decade later. Beautiful, beautiful. But there is one man who isn't satisfied with just the memories of the 2010 Vancouver Olympic Games. We have these wonderful venues. Uh, we have the reputation of, you know, the admiration of the world. And it's almost staring you in the face that this is an opportunity. The former CEO of the 2010 Organizing Committee first telling Global News he thinks Vancouver can do it all over again in 2030. The 2010 Games began with big dreams and very modest goals. The 2030 Games could finish the job. Furlong publicly issuing the challenge while speaking to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. It is early days and so lots of conversations have to happen and to ensure that we have everybody on board. According to our recent survey, Vancouver still has warm feelings when it comes to the 2010 Olympic Games and its legacy. In fact, of the people surveyed, 68% said hosting in 2010 was well worth it. 82% were satisfied with infrastructure bonuses, like fixing up the Sea to Sky Highway and getting a Canada Line SkyTrain. And 62% said they would already support a Summer Games bid. Let's go for it. It was successful last time, why not this time? I don't know how much it would cost though, it might be more expensive than last time. It certainly brought the city together and there were no riots. And while the hype around Vancouver 2030 already seems to be building, BC's Premier isn't ready to weigh in on the hypothetical. I'll have to go back to the finance minister and, and see what we have in the budget for uh, hypothetical uh, bid processes 10 years from now. Vancouver would need to build a new athlete's village. And unlike the memories, Furlong warns the existing venues and this window of opportunity won't last forever. Now there is some concern that being on the world stage shines a real estate spotlight on the region, increasing housing prices for locals. But according to Sir Somerville of the UBC Souter School of Business, looking at Vancouver in 2010 and other host Olympic cities, there's no proof that's the case. Jay? All right, thank you, John. John Waugh reporting for us tonight. Frustration continues to grow over nationwide protests sparked by a natural gas project in northern B.C. Two more rail blockades went up today, one of them near Kamloops. And in an effort to find a solution to the impasse, the Prime Minister has held a late afternoon teleconference with the Premier's. Ted Chernecki reports. Ocean-going freighters wait on the Pacific coast even as some of the blockades are cleared along Canada's two main rail lines. Just about every berth is occupied in Vancouver Harbour. And on the east coast, some container companies are purposely avoiding Halifax Harbour and diverting to Boston and New York. Caught in the middle is the entire Canadian economy. Disruptions of rail service are having a very significant impact on um, many Canadians and, and we, are we, we are seized by the urgency of the impact that it's having on them in our work. A new, much smaller blockade popped up just outside of Kamloops this morning, this one on the CP main line. But there is renewed hope that blockades like this will be coming down soon because of an initiative by the RCMP in BC to move its officers away from the Wet'suwet'en blockade and closer to Houston. The hereditary chiefs had indicated there would be no negotiating as long as the RCMP occupied their land. These are opportunities to come to uh a peaceful resolution, which is what we've always uh, aimed for from the beginning. There are steps to get there. Um, the step that was made by uh, the BC RCMP was, uh, was significant. Announcement of the RCMP withdrawal came after this morning's news conference in Vancouver where the BC Civil Liberties Association suggested the RCMP was in fact operating outside the law. There is absolutely no legal precedent nor established legal authority for such an overbroad policing power. 
Simply put, RCMP operations in Wet'suwet'en territories have been unlawful. Meanwhile, four Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are en route to Montreal for meetings with the Mohawks and others to thank them for their support, but to also discuss the politics of moving forward. And later today, the Prime Minister's office held a conference call with the Premiers. Ted Chernacki, Global News. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now for more on this. And Keith, the Premier today addressing the ongoing protests at his weekly media availability. What's his take at this point? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, pretty well every question, uh, with the exception of two on the Olympics, was about the blockades and what's going to be done here. I think the Premier uh, was evidently, I think, visibly frustrated at the situation. He's a strong supporter of the project. Uh, but he took pains again uh, under questions that he does not stand with hereditary chiefs. He shares no responsibilities with them. But he's very much interested in having meetings with them through his ministers. The likelihood of that happening doesn't seem to be that great. Nevertheless, here's the Premier's take uh, this afternoon. I, I'm not uh, going to accept responsibility for the decisions that the hereditary leaders are, are, are taking. I'm not going to accept responsibility for the positions they're adopting. I do accept responsibility as head of the Executive Council and the Government of British Columbia that I stand ready to work with the hereditary leadership to find a peaceful resolution to this issue. Now, again, he reaffirmed his uh, support for the project, says there's, it's unacceptable to him to have this thing uh, flounder. Uh, you, you heard Ted refer to that conference call between Prime Minister uh, Trudeau and the Premiers. This is a short uh, news release just issued by the pre uh, Prime Minister's office. doesn't say a heck of a lot. Basically, they came and they talked, and now the Prime Minister is going to review his options. What those options are, we still don't, are not entirely clear, and we don't have a time frame either. So I think this dispute's going to drag on for some time yet. All right. Thanks for that. Keith Baldry reporting in Victoria. The family of a Maple Ridge man who was fatally shot by police is demanding justice. RCMP had been called to take Ja Din to hospital after he suffered a schizophrenic episode. But moments later, he was dead. On what would have been his 55th birthday, his relatives want the officers charged. Catherine Urquhart reports. Justice for Ja Din! Justice for Ja Din! Inside the Independent Investigations Office of B.C. demands for justice. Family and supporters of Ja Din, who was killed in a police-involved shooting in Maple Ridge last year. How do you spell racism? Din's family called police amid concerns the schizophrenic man wasn't taking his medication. When officers arrived to take him to hospital, he refused to leave. Amid a confrontation, police used a taser. Then they opened fire, killing Din. Police claim Din had a knife. The police lying, the brother, once they opened the door, police, my brother attacked them with the knife. It is not true. The IIO's investigation into what occurred is still underway. We are investigating that yeah. um, and we are doing everything that we can to make sure that we have a fair and impartial um, investigation. Yeah. We're looking at all of the evidence and we really understand your grief. Among those supporting the family, several well-known protesters, some of whom were recently arrested at Delta Port, where demonstrators had blocked access to Canada's busiest port. We reached out to the DINs to ask if we could help um, organize a campaign for justice, and uh, they uh, welcomed me into their home. DIN's family says they want to know the names of the officers involved in the shooting. They're also calling for charges against those officers. We want IIO to recommend moderate charges. Din's sister says 1,300 people have signed a petition demanding answers about the police-involved shooting. That petition was given to the IIO. Catherine Urquhart, Global News.
One day after the release of Vancouver crime statistics for 2019 that showed property crime is up, Vancouver police released the results of their crackdown on downtown crime. And while police say their campaign led to 150 recommended charges and more than two dozen arrests, some business owners who've been victimized say more needs to be done. Here's Ramina Dea. Give the money, open the uh, register drawer, and uh, give the money. 63-year-old Gidu Nam refused, standing his ground against the armed suspect who entered his convenience store with a knife. He can't scare me because I'm Korean. Three years army service pays try almost here. He, oh. he almost stabbed you in yeah, the eye? almost my eyes. Nam was stabbed twice, once in each arm. His business, and, one of many in downtown Vancouver, which have been targeted by violent thieves in recent months. Vancouver police say officers have been targeting property crime in downtown since December. 26 people have been arrested and 150 charges recommended to Crown Council. The owner of this hostile, hopeful, but not convinced the arrests will change anything long term. Have you noticed any difference as far as crime going down? It wasn't too bad in the last few months, but we had ice and snow, and it was so cold that they weren't around quite as much. Do a little knot. Next door at Blushing Boutique, where clothes and the mannequin have gone missing, the owner proposed this solution more officers. Vancouver Police Department is they've told me specifically they're underfunded. They don't have they don't have enough people to patrol the streets. They are just running from call to call to call all day long. Vancouver's police chief confirmed more hires for 2020. This year it's 25 sworn additional sworn officers and 10 civilian professionals. Select in Nam's case, a suspect has not been charged. Four months have passed. He's still shaken. So you still have a little bit of trauma? Yeah, trauma. And uh, some serious come, I am nervous. Okay. Romina Dea, Global News. A city planner whose son has been shut out of a downtown Vancouver kindergarten is sharing his frustration tonight. Brent Totterin had a vision for his family that included his son attending a school right across the street. But because of high demand for spaces, that vision is no longer possible. Joe Bennett explains. Seems like a no-brainer. Families living in these downtown Vancouver towers would expect their children could attend the new school next door. That's what former Vancouver City planner Brent Totterin was thinking when he and his wife moved here 10 years ago. That's not how things unfolded. We found out earlier this year that there was way more kids than there were spaces and there was going to be a lottery, a random lottery. On Wednesday, Totterin got an email confirming his son did not get a kindergarten space. It's meant that a 10-year plan about how we were going to live our lives in our community is gone. Totterin says the city was right to secure spaces for new urban schools, but the funding model used by the province and the school board has failed. As a parent, I'm devastated. As a city planner, I'm furious about the, the failure of long-term thinking, the failure of creative and nimble thinking. Part of the problem at Crosstown is a school promised across False Creek in Olympic Village that would ease the pressure was just recently put on the priority list. But there's no time frame for when that school will be built. We recognize that uh, uh, more space uh, spaces are needed 
And uh, once again, our capital plan uh, does address that through the priority uh, list that we created, uh, in particular with the Coal uh, Harbour site, uh, which has recently been approved, and also uh, with uh, Olympic Village. But with no timeline, there is a call for the district to find other solutions, such as leasing existing spaces for classrooms. The Vancouver School Board is, is free to look at innovative ideas. That, that, that is exactly why they consult the community to get those kinds of ideas. Since Totteran started posting about his experience, many other parents have shared similar stories. Ironically, a big supporter of the public system, he's now considering a private school, the only other school within walking distance. Jill Bennett, Global News. A family of a disabled man is looking for answers tonight after he was killed in a horrifying accident. And a warning, some of the details are disturbing. Ward Woodfall died when a cigarette he was smoking fell on him and ignited. He lived in a building run by the Vancouver Resource Society and his family wants to know why the accident happened in the first place. This is where Ward Woodfall died. The 55-year-old had been confined to his power chair after a car accident three decades ago. A dropped cigarette in his west side apartment set fire to his clothes. His family has questions. How does a man with no motor function light cigarettes? They had set up certain things uh, to allow him to do that. I know there were care aids that would help him have a cigarette. Ward was a heavy smoker. Everyone, including his family, knew he used the candle on his desktop to light his smokes. The apartment where he lived run by the Vancouver Resource Society. While management had obvious health and safety issues with his smoking, he lived on his own, and the decision was made to allow him to live as independent a life as possible. It's who we are as an organization. We promote his independence. We don't dictate his lifestyle. And it's a very fine line. All of the safety equipment in the building functioned properly. The fire department says the smoke detector in the apartment went off, and VRS says a care aid did respond within a matter of minutes, but by then it was too late. The building's sprinkler system activated only after fire trucks arrived, once the small fire had spread to an upholstered chair in the living room. Uh, fire Investigations Division for the Vancouver Fire Rescue Department has uh, classified this as a smoking-related fire. It's an accidental fire. A tragic accident, easily preventable, and now Woodfall's family is demanding a thorough investigation. They need to make changes as far as um, policies go. I, I really feel that um, this was negligence. A meeting is scheduled between the family and the management of the Vancouver Resource Society. Policies about smoking in the West 10th apartment complex likely to be reviewed. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. After months of inaction from the city and park board, neighbors of Vancouver's Oppenheimer Park say the situation at the tent city is finally starting to get better. In the weeks since a third-party company was hired to take over, the park is notably tidier and was even the site of a community barbecue today. But with such a big improvement, locals are asking what took so long. Jordan Armstrong reports. Neighbors and people living at Oppenheimer say there's been a remarkable improvement since PHS Community Service was hired at the end of last month. A large tent city remains, but a lot of the garbage has been cleaned up. Of course, the long-term goal is to house all the people here, but in the interim, some new tents have been brought in to replace broken ones. The park washrooms and showers have reopened. Community barbecues are happening daily. Today, there was a drumming circle and a meeting for stakeholders with the national chief of the 
Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. The Vancouver Buddhist Temple helped out with today's barbecue. You might recall the temple garage was looted by thieves last month, and last year their Buddhist statue was yanked off their steps. But they are pleased the neighborhood finally seems to be heading in the right direction. It's improved. I mean, it's the park has been cleaned up. It's we have a, almost a sense of community now. Why hasn't this occurred before? Why couldn't this happen with Parks Board managing the park? Why did it take the PHS to create this change, to create this new atmosphere? So the fixer in all of this, PHS Community Services, was actually hired by BC Housing, a provincial agency, not the Vancouver Park Board, even though the Vancouver Park Board was adamant about maintaining its jurisdiction over Oppenheimer. We reached out to the Park Board for comment, but no one got back to us. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A huge inferno on an interstate highway in Indianapolis. A semi-trailer hauling fuel overturned and burst into flames, spraying burning fuel everywhere. A good Samaritan managed to pull the driver out of the truck. He was rushed to hospital with serious burns. Another longtime confidant of President Donald Trump was sent to prison today for obstructing Congress. Roger Stone was sentenced to more than three years in a case that sparked fears of presidential interference in the justice system. Thirteen months after he was arrested by the FBI, Roger Stone, a former Trump campaign advisor, came to court to learn his fate. His lawyer said given his age, 67, and declining health, he should get at most home detention. But prosecutors urged the judge to consider all the criminal conduct listed in the Justice Department's original sentencing recommendation. The one submitted before Attorney General William Barr directed the government to urge a less harsh punishment. Stone said nothing in court today, perhaps hoping his lawyers can get him a new trial. He was sentenced by federal judge Amy Berman Jackson, the same judge in a photo Stone posted last year on social media with what looked like a gun sight crosshairs near her head. Judge Jackson said Stone showed a flagrant disregard for American democracy when he lied to a House committee about his efforts to find out what WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was up to with emails hacked by the Russians about the Hillary Clinton campaign. This was no political case, she said, quote, you were not prosecuted for standing up for the president, you were prosecuted for covering up for the president. In a clear reference to President Trump's relentless tweeting about the case, she said it's appropriate that Stone is judged by someone neutral, not by a person who benefited politically from Stone's conduct. Outside comments about the case, she said, were entirely inappropriate. The sentence, three and a third years in prison, well below the maximum under federal guidelines. I worry that people won't believe this is a fair outcome, though I do believe it is. Intervention from political leaders casts a doubt on what happens in federal court. A defiant Mike Bloomberg says he's not going away despite a shaky debut Wednesday night in a debate among Democratic presidential nominees. The New York billionaire taking a beating from all sides, particularly over his alleged behavior towards women. It was a heavyweight match from the opening bell. Everyone jumping on the newcomer in the ring, Michael Bloomberg. We are giving a voice to people who are saying we are sick and tired of billionaires like Mr. Bloomberg. Elizabeth Warren not waiting a New York minute to land a punch. 
a billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. Bloomberg surprisingly unprepared to explain lawsuits his company settled with women alleging a hostile workplace. Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, they signed those agreements and we'll live with it. Lester challenging Bloomberg about his controversial police policy of stop and frisk, later ruled unconstitutional, for which he has apologized. What does that kind of language say about how you view people of color or people in minority neighborhoods? I've apologized, I've asked for forgiveness, but the bottom line is that we stopped too many people. The policy was abhorrent, and it was, in fact, a violation of every right people have. And sparks flying between Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. You voted to make English the national language. Do you know the message that sends? I wish everyone was as perfect as you, Pete. Bloomberg moving on to Utah, still arguing he is the only candidate who can stop Bernie Sanders, the clear frontrunner, who remained largely unscathed. And if we choose a candidate who appeals to a small base like Senator Sanders, it will be a fatal error. Sanders alarming party leaders by saying he'll claim the nomination if he's ahead in delegates, even if he has not reached the official number to win. I think that the will of the people should put down. What is your reaction to him saying last night that if he's ahead in the delegates going into the convention, he should get the nomination. It'd be the first time ever we've ever done anything like that. I think that is, I guess if I were he, I'd make that argument, but I don't think it's a rational argument. A private equity firm is buying a controlling stake in Victoria's Secret. The once dominant lingerie retailer will go private in a deal that shows how far it has fallen out of favor. Sycamore Brands is buying 55% of the struggling retailer from L Brands for $525 million. Sales at Victoria's Secret stores have been in decline because of increased competition and changing tastes. In health matters tonight, a plane carrying healthy Canadians from the quarantined Diamond Princess cruise ship is expected to touch down on Canadian soil early tomorrow morning. They'll undergo further testing for the COVID-19 coronavirus before they're placed under another two-week quarantine in Cornwall, Ontario. Meantime, questions are swirling around what went wrong on the ship as the Japanese government confirms for the first time that two passengers have died. Finally. The masks passengers are wearing as they leave the Diamond Princess make it tough to see the smiles. But in a lot of cases, they're there. This is an Australian couple heading home Thursday on a repatriation flight. Canadians are doing the same thing. A New Brunswick couple shared these photos of the bus to the airport. They're facing 14 more days in quarantine in Cornwall, Ontario. But they're okay with that. Oh, I just want to be in Canada. Even though I'm not going to be at home in Fredericton, just to be in Canada is going to be great. (laughs) You're only supposed to be in on uh, vacation. Not everyone is so lucky. Ariel Trudel's parents were on the Diamond Princess, but his father tested positive. These are photos of their trip to a Japanese hospital. Trudel says his father's running a fever and coughing. He's not feeling so well. He's very tired all the time. He wants to sleep. And he's always sleeping. So, yeah, that's the saddest. Kind of like a bad flu is the way Exactly, yes. Now, what started as a handful of cases spread to more than 16% of the ship, but until now, no passenger had died. 
Well, Thursday, the government announced two Japanese citizens, both in their 80s, died of the virus. Both did have other underlying health problems that likely contributed to their deaths. Japan's government has faced strong criticism over why the quarantine doesn't appear to have been effective. The minister says treating passengers on a ship was more difficult than patients in a hospital, insisting from the beginning the government has done its best. Mike Armstrong, Global News, Montreal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It is a cautionary tale that hammers home the importance of proper disposal of euthanized animals. A number of bald eagles have been accidentally poisoned on Vancouver Island. The birds are believed to have fed on an animal carcass that was loaded with sedatives. And as Linda Aylesworth tells us, the eagles are lucky to be alive. Ready? She is one of 10 bald eagles poisoned over the weekend at the Nanaimo landfill. The treatment, activated charcoal delivered by way of a tube down the throat. Rather than go through the body to be digested and eliminated through the liver and kidneys, it actually will get bind to it, so it just poops it out. Dr. Langelier started receiving the eagles at his veterinary hospital on Sunday after someone noticed something was amiss. Notice an eagle go from standing to laying down flat and almost non-responsive. When word got out about the poisonings, members of the raptors sprang into action. A bunch of us went up to scour the area and around the landfill, and that day we collected eight birds altogether. Two more were found in the following days. Since then, one has died. As for the survivors, most have been sent to various wildlife organizations to finish their recovery. So how could this have happened? We're 19... 899% sure that it was a, a small pig that was disposed of improperly in the garbage. A pig that was most likely euthanized with heavy doses of barbiturates. At this time of the year can be tough for eagles, so they're really looking for anything they can to eat, um, which includes scavenging. Thing is, the landfill in Nanaimo has a protocol for disposing of animals, euthanized or not. One that's in place to prevent such poisonings from happening. We have a policy, uh, it's called controlled waste under our bylaw, and you must make an appointment. Um, we bring a machine down and bury it right away. Apparently not everyone is aware of or adheres to that rule. As a result, this is not the first time it's happened. Last year, 12 were poisoned. Half of them died. This is almost number 50 for me in my career of different poison, barbiturate poisoned eagles. Uh, I'd be happy to never see one again. Aylesworth, Global News. All right, coming up, caught on video, the embarrassing end to a planned caper. An Ohio inmate is cuffed on the floor. How she got there was even more painful. That's after the forecast. It all fell apart for her very quickly. It certainly did. Now, speaking of the forecast, you made an observation yeah. earlier in the news. How you're hearing some... Chirping. Chirping uh, in I, our news stories. A lot of our stories had a very spring feel to them. You could hear the birds in the background. So 
It's a good sign. We're optimistic. Oh, yes. And you should be. I mean, we've had a stretch. So today is officially day four. Longest stretch of sunny weather that we've had since November. So there's lots to celebrate, that's for sure. And tomorrow we may even scour out one more day of sunshine. Along the coast, nines and tens, just slightly above seasonal. Inland regions, though, 13 degrees. Those temperatures are closer to what we would see towards the end of March. So maybe it's no wonder we're seeing or hearing some birds chirp. Here's a quick look at your highs for inland regions, upper, lower digits and through the south, six and seven degrees. Beautiful conditions, barely a cloud in the sky and a new space. You can see here a nice sunset near Green Lake. And one more for you from Burnaby Lake. Thank you to Bonnie for that one. So we are going to see a change tomorrow, but it's going to move in very slowly, this system. It's taking its sweet time moving down the coast. So for our region, you can expect at least a fair amount of sunshine through the morning hours, increasing cloud later on. And the rainfall not developing until the late evening hours, likely for Metro Vancouver and Southern Vancouver Island. Those of you further north, you'll see it earlier in the day. Now, so we do sort of salvage our Friday, I guess you could say, but it's unfortunate it is going to linger a little longer into our Saturday morning, but we're still keeping our fingers crossed for Sunday or Saturday afternoon breaks of sunshine. So there's your forecast. So periods of rain across coastal regions. Inland regions won't see it. You'll uh, see a few showers or flurries in Prince George, but mainly sunny across southern regions. And again, our region increasing cloud later in the day tomorrow. The rainfall pushing into these areas first. Highs of 9 degrees with that sunshine and and then Saturday, showers in the morning, breaks of sunshine in the afternoon. Sunday's unfortunately looking wet. So the wet weather landing on the weekend, we rebound on Monday. And your central windows, windows weather window, look back at 2010. And who's that? John Montgomery. <laughs> There's your gold winning race there. Thank you to Riza for that one. Great shot. The legend. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, nice to see we get one more day of the sun before things change a bit. Caught on surveillance video, a great escape that wasn't so great. An Ohio woman's attempt to get out of a jail fell victim to gravity. That's right. Uh, This is 42-year-old Jessica Boomershine crashing through the ceiling of the county jail where she tried to crawl to freedom. An officer pulls her down onto a garbage can and she's cuffed and, yes, taken into custody. She's now charged with escape and vandalism in addition to her original kidnapping and assault charges. The entire incident apparently not impressing the inmate sitting on the right side of your screen who doesn't bat an eye as the drama unfolds. She's not even phased by this. I, I watched this earlier and she's just she's watching the whole thing take place. Very stoic. Doesn't want to get involved perhaps. She knew how it was going to end, I think. That's right. I feel we saw one of these uh, not too long ago, another escape attempt. So I went creep through the If she had got out, she was trying to get the Z Watt nail to hang out with Morgan Freeman. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Look under the black. Can you rock. imagine? Can you imagine if Shaw sank Redemption into that way? That'd be such a bummer. We could all just kind of go like See this. See this thing, everybody. This is the battery for the microphone, and it's got nothing on it. Wait, what did you say? Here, Thanks. take mine. Thank you. I really appreciate that, actually. Now that's Get teamwork. Get the battery up to the floor, please. <laughs> that's teamwork. Hold on. Yeah, that's teamwork. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, okay. You see how it works? Sometimes it happens. Good teammate. Yeah. Uh, J.T. Miller plays a good game, and he talks a good game as well. Ask any of his teammates, and they will tell you he's like a radio. You can't turn him off. But the way he plays and the advice he dishes out to other Canucks means that nobody minds his constant chatter. Miller shoots. 
J.T. Miller does let his play do the talking, but he also supplements that by talking a lot as well. Even though it's just his first season in Vancouver, Miller is the vocal leader on this team, but it's much more than just idle chatter. There's wisdom in all those words. He's a loud mouth, but uh, he's intelligent with what he's saying. He's not wrong, so uh, I have a lot of respect for him, and I definitely listen when he speaks. He's definitely a student of the game. You know, he's he's watching video and, and critiquing his own game, and then just trying to find find holes in in the other team's defense and, and obviously when he's on the power play he's just trying to find holes and where what what plays will be open and what he needs to do so I, I definitely give him credit for being a student of the game. Miller is having his best NHL season ever. His 24 goals and 59 points are both career highs and he still has a quarter of a season remaining but his contributions go beyond the excellent point production. He's mentored young Canucks like Jake Vertanen and Adam Gaudet in all aspects of the game, from face-offs to game preparation. Someone uh, us young guys like to look up to, and um, you know, he's such a great example out there on the ice, and you know, even in practice, and in what you should and shouldn't be doing. And um, you know, he's a great person to follow. You know, he knows when to be funny and when to be serious and turn it on, and you know what to say at the right times. And um, you know, it's something that helps us young guys, uh, you know, get through these games, especially at this time of the season. And he's going to score easily. Well, we fixed it, and how do we do it? We just kept slamming it against the table until it worked. That's all it takes. <laughs> Quinn Hughes put on another remarkable performance last night as well, even though the Canucks did lose that game in a shootout to Minnesota. We went to a Jordy Ben's stall today and asked him about Hughes' skating ability, which, of course, coupled with his hockey IQ, makes him dangerous on every shift. If you watch him, and I'm sure people, people are, the way he uses his edges, his outside edges, just to keep moving and instead of stopping and starting, he's just he's swinging in and using different edges. It's just so effort, effortless. And, um, you know, when we're skating out there, a lot of the time, Bomber's just like, you see how Quinn does this, you see how Quinn does that, and I kind of start laughing. I'm like, yeah, I see that. But one, I wasn't taught like that. Obviously, we were taught a long time ago. And if I did something, some of the stuff he tries or he does, I think my hips would fall off. <laughs> okay, from Jordy to Jamie, his brother. Last night, Jamie did this to Oliver Ekman Larson. He got kicked out of the game. Now, these two don't like each other from an old movie, but no extra discipline today. Hmm. No suspension for Jamie Ben. Despite what you see there, uh, Ekman Larson did come back into the game later on. All right, Gary Price taking on Alex Ovechkin and the Capitals at 6-9-9. Quick in back of the net, one nothing for the Capitals. But they didn't win this game. Here's another big shooter. That's Shea Weber. That made it 1-1. It was 3-3 in OT and then in overtime. We now have the winning goal. Ben Sherratt, 4-3. The final. This is why you always wear your visor. This is tonight. Nick Felino oh. right in the face. Wow. The visor breaks. Oh. The crack part actually hits him in the nose and cuts him in the nose, but if that visor hadn't been there, he wouldn't be able to get back in the game, which he did with a new visor. Uh, someone who was a big part of Canada's success in 2010 is all for trying it again in 2030. Fort St. John speed skater Denny Morrison said he would love to see future Canadian athletes get to experience what he did 10 years ago. 
was so lucky to have won an Olympic gold medal on home soil in front of a building filled with 6,000 people from all over Canada cheering their faces off. Pre uh, Prime Minister was there and teammates, coaches, friends, family from all over BC and Canada. It was uh, the pinnacle moment of sport for me in my career. And uh, I think to recreate that magic for any other Canadian athlete or the city of Vancouver, the city of Whistler and, and Squamish and everything in between, it's... Uh, Vancouver is a perfect place to do it, and it's uh, an incredible city. That was an incredible experience, and I think they should absolutely uh, put their bid in again if they can. All right, WGC Mexico. Rory McIlroy, the number one player in the world. And this is from 28 feet away. That ties him for the lead at four under par. He finishes round with another birdie, six under par, 65, which at that point put him in the lead. And he still holds yeah, that Corey lead Connors at six under. Corey Connors, Canadian, par five, second shot, 297 away. That's a three wood, if you're wondering. Down the right. And this oh, would it. It on the front put him the into birdie range. Just a bit of the down slope left uh -huh. in San Antonio. He knocked that in. He actually was on the lead early on. Then he had a disastrous 15th hole, reached oh, the par five and goodness. two, but then goodness four putted. Come on, I can do that. So Rory at minus six has wow, a two-shot wow, really? lead over Thomas and Watson. Feel his pain. There you go. Some incredible multitasking during that sports cast. Wasn't it, though? Green highlights, updating scoreboards, fixing microphones. Well, no, you helped fix the microphone. That was a good pass. Here's your snow report for tonight. Not a lot of new snow, but the South Coast mountains are nice and mild, and we've had picture-perfect bluebird days. Manning Park, Revelstoke, Fernie, Kicking Horse all should see snow starting on Saturday. Big White, Silver Star, Sun Peaks, and Apex also expecting snowfall on Saturday. As for Mount Washington, Whitewater, Red Mountain, and Powder King, Powder King is the only one with new snow at 3 centimeters. Well, a scary sight in Florida today that had airport emergency crews scrambling. A small plane carrying two people coming in with no landing gear, setting sparks and flames flying. At Daytona Beach International, a fiery landing as a small jet slides across the airfield, shooting out flames and smoke. Kind of surreal, you know, seeing the airplane just kind of skid over, over the runway without, without landing gear. Authorities say when the twin-engine private Cessna finally stopped, the two on board walked out without injuries. But the runway was shut down for a full inspection, delaying flights until it could be deemed safe for other planes. This month, several hard landings have been caught on camera, like this terrifying moment as a Boeing 737 came down too hard in Russia. Fortunately, there were no serious injuries. And this past weekend, a seat-clinching landing in London, as stormy weather and strong winds had the plane teetering in the air. Easy. Incredibly, those pilots never lost control, landing safely. Well, tonight in Florida, investigators looking into why this smaller private jet touched down with landing gear that either malfunctioned or wasn't deployed. Gotti Schwartz, NBC News. All right, well, everyone was safe, and I know you don't like to fly, Squire, and after seeing this, uh... Well, I mean, <laughs> again, as everybody says, what are the odds? Right. And they, they walked away. They did. Bit, it was a bit sparky, but they got out. But and do I like to fly? No, I really don't. <laughs> Home has so much to offer. It does. Right? Why go anywhere? And it's on the ground. Yes. See you at 11.